You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. What can physicians learn from understanding what it is like to live with diabetes day after day? Joining us to discuss the emotional and behavioral side of diabetes is founder of the Behavioral Diabetes Institute in San Diego, California, Dr. William Polonsky. Dr. Polonsky, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Well, what's the first step? And if you're a busy clinician and you don't have much time and you've got, you got kind of a current attitude now that, you know, you've had patient after patient that comes in without their logbook and, you know, and they, they're not doing exactly what you tell them to do, what's, what's the first step for them? Gosh, well, I think the first step, and I know this is difficult for busy physicians, is to take a deep breath and say, can, can, tell, me, uh, tell me something about diabetes that's driving you crazy. Tell me something about diabetes you're finding difficult that even though there's not much time and, and there's a fear of using open-ended questions because there's such a limited amount of time available, it's really important to try and um, create an alliance with that patient and see if you can identify one of the major obst- obstacles that might be in that person's way and to address it. Yeah, now on the other end of the spectrum, let's talk a little bit about people with diabetes. You know, the, the, the listeners don't know that, you know, you speak quite a bit at our patient conferences. So how can we help our patients think differently or even positively about their own diabetes, especially as it relates to uh, interacting with their healthcare physician? Well, it is true that patients get so discouraged and they get discouraged about so many things. And I, I'm not sure which place you want to start, but certainly the thing that I think that doesn't get addressed enough is how despairing, out of control, and hopeless people feel about diabetes. And that doesn't mean they're, you know, uh, uh, in a deep depression, but just feeling hopeless that this disease is going to get me and there's really nothing much you can do about it, so why bother even getting engaged about it? And when physicians are presenting you with a long series of uh, scary messages, it just reinforces the sense of hopelessness. Yeah, well, how, how can we as uh, caregivers su- support uh, our patients or at least... Uh, in helping them maintaining a, a good attitude? Um, well, I think the most important thing is to uh, take small steps to create, first of all, just an alliance. I, one of the biggest problems that you and I see is a degree to which patients don't feel like their doctor and their other health care providers are on their side. It really becomes an adversarial relationship. It's like doctor and patient are sitting across a desk from each other um, as adversaries versus on the same side of the desk, shoulder to shoulder, looking out and realizing that you're both trying to deal with this, what is recognizably a tough disease day to day to deal with. And it's creating that sense of collaboration that is by far the critical, most important step. And we do that literally as healthcare providers with where we sit, how well we listen to our patients, and again, these kind of opening questions. Let's, let's take home glucose monitoring as an example. Uh, you know, when patients come in, uh, they may or may not have recorded as much as their caregiver would have liked. They may have even made up the numbers, uh, or they may have had all very good numbers with about 10% of them maybe not good. So what, you know, I know that, uh, uh, you know, you and I have both heard comments from patients that that's a frustrating area when they bring them into their caregiver. Let's talk about that a little bit, and don't forget that most of the folks listening are people on the doctor side. Sure. Um, I think... 
the, the critical mistake that's made is, again, because as busy healthcare professionals were interested in discovering pathology, there's a tendency, if someone brings in a logbook, to quickly look at all their blood sugars and search out as quickly as you can the, the most aberrant number, typically the number that's the highest, draw a red circle around it, look down your nose at your patient and say, what happened here? What did you do wrong this time? As opposed to starting with some opening message that congratulates people for even keeping track of their blood sugar, remembering to bring their logbook, and, and recognizing that you know, it's guaranteed numbers are going to go up and down, that we start with that sense of normalizing and, and uh, congratulations before we start this search for what went wrong. That's really what helps. Well, that it brings up the topic of the diabetic police, because that's a term that you coined. I love it. And it, and I think it was originally coined for the significant other of someone with diabetes, but I think caregivers are the diabetic police. So let's talk about that concept, the diabetic police and the diabetic criminal. You know, I think that's important. Sure. And you're right. I think either family members, friends, strangers, healthcare professionals can fall in that role. And how we define the diabetes police is, again, these are people without diabetes in the person's life who've decided that somehow God has deputized them to help the person manage the disease, whether that individual likes it or not. And as that gets perceived as nagging, as bugging the individual, there's a very, very natural tendency for any of us in the patient role or not to want to assert our independence. And we do that by typically doing the opposite of whatever we're being bugged about. So you don't think I should eat that piece of cake? Well, watch me do it. And people inadvertently become adversaries. They become diabetes criminals, which then leads to more policing. And again, it's this idea of, for healthcare professionals, how can, what can they do so that they're not necessarily just in the authoritarian policeman role, but the perception of being on the same side as the individual? And that's what gets lost. Yeah, that's for sure. I know you're, you've developed a diabetes etiquette card for uh, significant others and friends of people with diabetes. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with Dr. William Polonsky. We are discussing the behavioral side of diabetes. Well, Bill, let's, let's talk a little bit about depression. As you know, there is a, about more than a decade of good research looking at depression and diabetes. It is elevated. The best evidence, most recent evidence, suggests there's about a 50% elevation in terms of prevalence of moderate to major depressive disorder in people with diabetes, both type 1 and type 2, compared to people who don't have diabetes. But to be fair, um, as most listeners probably know, we actually see elevated rates of depression in people with most chronic medical illnesses, and diabetes is just one of them. Um, we don't know why. I mean, there's a lot of uh, work looking at are there bio, uh, biological reasons. Certainly a big factor are the psychological contributors to depression, that um, depression is about powerlessness. It's about feeling out of control, and the degree to which you feel out of control with diabetes um, if your blood sugars are wacky, if you're running into complications, it's not surprising that that would uh, link up with and interact with depression. Well, that kind of relates to a term I've heard you use several times, which is uh, that we that people with diabetes, I'm saying we because I have diabetes, live in a toxic environment. I explain to our listeners, what do you mean by the toxic environment for someone with diabetes? Well, um, we know that for most people, and again, we're thinking mostly about type 2 patients trying to manage so much, including their weight, that we tend not to acknowledge that one of the things that's toughest for them is there's so much in our environment that really is working against them and working against all of us. 
that it's hard to be physically active when you live in a society um, where there's so many labor-saving devices. It's, it's so easy to be inactive. That's why we have uh, such lovely studies showing things like that uh, rates of obesity are um, uh, linear related to how long your commute is. I mean, if you're simply sitting in a car so much of the day, it's not surprising it's going to be harder to control your weight. And, of course, most of us are familiar with the issues around how um, food in our society has become toxic as, well, toxic as well, portion sizes in restaurants, etc. Well, what's the treatment for depression? Is it Do these folks respond the same to SSRIs as non-diabetic individuals? The few studies that we have suggest that people with diabetes respond fairly well to antidepressants, fair, to most antidepressants, fairly well to uh, structured forms of counseling, especially what's called cognitive behavioral therapy. And I'm being hesitant with you because the evidence we have does suggest that there is, seems to be a stronger likelihood that folks with diabetes will uh, relapse. They're more likely to have further uh, major depressive episodes, even after they are, after they are quote-unquote, successfully treated. And this may simply be the drag of the disease or the emotional aspects of living with diabetes that aren't really addressed very well. How can we help our patients get the support they need from friends, family, and their physician? You know, one of the reasons why we produced our first diabetes etiquette card is to find a humorous way to get people and their loved ones to start talk to, talking to each other about these aggravating moments in a more um, um, open manner. Um, and in the programs we do with patients, we're always saying, you know, think about the kind of support that you could really use and benefit from from the people in your life. And let's get very concrete about that and think assertively about what steps you can take to make that happen. If you're trying to exercise, would it be easier to have someone who might go with you? If you're trying to change how you eat, who's going to join you in, your, in your, this new adventure for you? Um, and if someone's driving you crazy, what is it you want to say to them to get them to change their behavior? Because, unfortunately, diabetes policemen in your life mostly mean well, so it's often hard to get them to stop. So it's just getting very, very concrete and specific with individuals and asking them to think about what are the kind of assertive conversations they can have with their loved ones that, that might help. Oftentimes we, of course, have spouses and family members attend as well, and we'll talk with them and give them ideas. Is there any direct evidence that changing behavior leads to improved glycemic control like the A1C? Are there intervention studies? You know, there's been some work, but I have to say I'm not impressed as of yet that there are really... Um, satisfying, you know, gold standard randomized controlled trials that really show us how effective these behavioral um, approaches can be in improving glycemic control. I mean, if we back up all the way to the diabetes control and complications trial, I would argue that is a behavioral intervention, which worked, which worked awfully well. But if we really look in the modern era since then, we don't yet have enough studies. There's a couple small studies from uh, Amsterdam and the UK, but really not the hardcore stuff that we need. Yeah, and I, I think with the advent of managed care, uh, you know, I think access to certain types of emotional and behavioral uh, support has been less and less depending on what system you're in. Well, I'd like to finish up by telling uh, the listeners a little bit about the Behavioral Diabetes Institute because I know that you have programs that are also online as well as in person, and I think it's a good area to discuss because this is what we need uh, to address this important aspect of diabetes care. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, the Institute is um, you know, the first and only organization uh, in the whole world that's totally dedicated to a 
addressing these emotional and behavioral needs of folks with diabetes. And we have a variety of uh, structured group programs, and people come from all over the United States, and they're, uh, we make sure they're very low cost or free to everyone. Um, and uh, uh, we're constantly working on uh, developing evaluation models to document and provide some of the research evidence that, just as we discussed a few minutes ago, really has been lacking today. Well, thanks, Bill. Uh, I certainly think downloading the etiquette cards would be a lot of fun and very valuable. I'd like to thank our guest, founder of the Behavioral Diabetes Institute in San Diego, California, Dr. William Polonsky. Dr. Polonsky, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Hey, thanks, Steve. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess, in a way, it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.